Once again, welcome to Harvest. We're glad you're here, man. And we're going to continue to worship the Lord now through the preaching of his word. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab one of those. Uh, if you don't have one with you, there are some hardback black ones somewhere there on the floor around you. You're welcome to grab one of those. We'd love for you to follow along there as well. Um, we're going to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 is where you need to head. Uh, we have been in this new series, uh, not really new anymore, we've been in this series now for a while in the book of Acts, um, and right now we're talking about strength from the Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit work in our lives, in our hearts, to give us strength to follow Christ and to do what he's called us to do? And so um, that's what we're going to be digging into today is strength to trust, to trust the Lord even in some of the hardest times. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, we're starting Harvest Gives today, um, which means we're coming up on Christmas. Um, by the way, 37 days till Christmas. Yeah, everybody's like, <gasps> it feels like really late this year because we haven't even had, we haven't even got to like Black Friday yet, right? So it's like crazy. But Christmas is coming, and Christmas is always like a super fun time at our house. We love Christmas. Courtney says, I get more excited about giving gifts to the girls than the girls actually get about receiving gifts. Um, that's just kind of the way it always played out in my house growing up. It was just, uh, my parents loved it, kids loved it, it was a cool time. I remember when I was like five or six years old, I got um, every little boy's dream gift for Christmas, my first remote control car. And you guys remember getting like, your, like that, when you were a kid, like getting that one gift, you're like, oh man, I've been waiting for this, like this is the gift. So I got this gift, it was it was this uh, remote control car. I had the, the small wheels on the front, and, you know, the big wheels on the back, and it had the nice big spoiler on the top, and, and it was like this cool, like, blue cobalt, blue color. Like, it was just, you guys are not understanding how awesome this car was. I, I can tell you're not getting it. Like, you're not feeling me on this. But it's, this was top-notch Christmas present, all right? So I, I got my gift, and I was so excited, so proud of my new RC car. I wanted to go and and uh, show it to all my friends. I wanted to take it to school and, like, you know, this be my big, like, moment. And my parents were like, you, you really shouldn't do that. If you take it to school, it's gonna, something's going to happen. It's going to get broke. Something's going to get messed up. And I'm like, no, no, I got I to gotta show my friends. So the first day of school after Christmas break, I proudly walk into the school, head held high, holding my new remote control car, walking in, so excited. I went, I put it in my cubby there in, um, you know, the, the room, and it sat there all morning just like, taunting me, you know, just waiting for a recess to finally come where we could have its moment of glory. So the bell rings, we all rush out onto the playground. I got this big group of kids around me ready to, to see the car. And so I, I put the car down on the asphalt and I crank it up and it just, whoop, off it goes, man. And it was a glorious 33 seconds. Um, because as it went down, all the kids are chasing it and I turn it and it starts to turn. And then one of my classmates, I don't ever call him a friend, to this day will not call him a friend, one of my classmates, as it turns, steps on my brand new remote control car, cracking the body, busting the axle, the whole thing just And so I go home that day in grief over my car, and I take it to my parents, and I'm like, look what happened in my car. And my dad looks at it, he's like, son, uh, this isn't fixable. We can't fix this. And they didn't. And they didn't buy me a new one because they were good parents. And they wanted me to learn a lesson from that painful experience. And I did. I learned to trust my parents the next time they told me to protect my things. A lot of times in our life, God is a parent, God's a father, and he allows painful things to come in our lives to teach us a lesson, to help us learn to trust him in the midst of the pain. And that's what we're going to see today in Acts here 
specifically in the way of persecution, um, sometimes it's pain, sometimes it's suffering, sometimes it's hardship, sometimes it's even outright, vengeful, purposeful, premeditated persecution of our faith in our life. And that's what we're going to see here with the church. That persecution is God giving me a chance to trust him more. A lot of times we don't think about persecution that way, right? Like we don't see it as an opportunity, as a gift from the Lord to to use for something positive. (coughs) Excuse me. But when persecution comes, God is oftentimes using that in our lives. He's allowing it to give us an opportunity to grow in our trust, to grow in our faith for who he is in our life. So let me show you that from the text. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Starts off like this. And Saul approved of his execution. That's the execution of Stephen. We talked about that last week, right? Martyred for his faith. Saul approved of the execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. First main point today is this. When persecution challenges your faith, trust the Lord. When persecution challenges your faith, trust the Lord. So here it says that, starts off with this linking verse, this linking statement of Saul approved of the execution. So this is linking Saul being present at the execution of Stephen and looking over it and and being uh, you know, in agreement with it. And it's linking this to what's going to happen next as Paul starts to go into overdrive in terms of persecuting the church, which is eventually going to lead him to a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. But notice here it says, on that day a great persecution arose. What's really interesting to me about that is we've already seen a lot of stuff happen to the Christians in Acts, right? Like we've already seen a lot of bad stuff going on. This is the first time that Luke actually calls it persecution. Not because those other things weren't, but I think it's escalating to such a degree. It's, it's escalating so quickly at this point that he's now putting that label on it. Right? He's now giving it that official title of now came the great persecution. And he says here that the, great, that the persecution was against the church. Another point of escalation. It's no longer against just Jesus. It's no longer just the apostles or the church leaders. It's against all of the church. All believers are now in the cross arrows of this great persecution. And we see from them in this passage three responses to this persecution that arose that I think are interesting. Number one, it says that many of them scattered. Right? Do you see that there? It says that they, that they scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So most of the church, they fled. They fled the persecution. They got out of the city of Jerusalem, and they went into the countryside to get away from it. And at first glance, that could seem like a negative, like they were running away from their faith or they were giving up or they were abandoning. But we don't see that because as you get deeper in the passage, you're going to see that as they went, they still had just as much faith in Jesus as they did prior to scattering. They're just now avoiding, they're just now getting away from the, the, the danger. Right? That's not a bad thing. I think sometimes when we talk about persecution and martyrdom, we feel like if you're going to be a good Christian, man, you've got to stand there and just take it. Sometimes. And sometimes God gives you an out. And he's like, hey, listen, you don't have to take this. Like, go, go over here. 
So some of them scattered, and that's totally okay, because they still had a firm faith in Jesus Christ, as we're going to see in a moment. Second response is some stayed. It says the apostle specifically stayed. I think it says that because I think the apostle stuck around in order to lead and to shepherd the few Christians that were going to stay in the city. Because we know some of them stayed. Because in a couple of chapters later, we see that there's now a church in Jerusalem that for people to go back to and talk to. So some people had to stay, right, if there's going to be a church in Jerusalem. So the apostles stay. They shepherd the church there in Jerusalem. Probably the majority of the persecution was directed towards the Hellenists. Remember last week we talked about the difference between the Hellenists and the Hebrews? Well, Stephen, who got executed, was a Hellenist. So probably the guys who were closest to him were the ones getting the most heat of the persecution. They were probably the ones that were fleeing the most. The Hebrews probably got to stick around more because they were more ingrained in the Jewish community there. So some of them scattered, some of them stayed. But regardless, you see the unity here. You see the 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 oneness of the church because they took, the way Luke writes is they took the persecution as, hey, if you attack one of us, you attack all of us. Like we're in this together, right? They're, they're very much looking at this as a church thing, not just a few guys over here who are getting their, getting their peace. So some scattered, some stayed, and there's a third response. Some stood. I love how Luke details that there were some devoted men who went and buried and mourned publicly over Stephen. In this time, if a, someone was killed for criminal activity, if someone was executed or, you know, whatever, you didn't, you got to bury, you could bury them, but you could not mourn over them. It was not allowed. It's against the law. So for them to publicly go out and mourn over Stephen's death, they are basically in protest saying, this wasn't legitimate. This man was killed, not executed. They're calling this murder. They're, they're standing up. They're taking a big risk, but they're doing it to honor the Lord and to honor the faith of which Stephen gave his life. These are all legitimate responses. Sometimes it's okay for us to flee persecution. Sometimes we need to stay underneath it and get done what God's told us to get done. And sometimes we need to stand up in the face of it and say, this isn't right, and the Lord says what the Lord says is true. But regardless of the response, what you see here is that the persecution, it tested their zeal. It tested their faithfulness. It's taken them to the ropes here. But the record shows us that even in the midst of the persecution, they kept trusting in God no matter what. They had to trust God to stand. They had to trust God to stay. Even those who scattered were going to see trusted God as they went and spread the gospel beyond the walls of Jerusalem. All of this is happening as Luke details for us in verse 3, as Paul is ravaging the church. I don't want to get too graphic this morning, but think about when we use that word normally. Think about the word ravaging. And the pain and the severity of which that brings. He's going house to house. like He's, he's bulging into people's houses, private spaces, and dragging them out men and women, doesn't matter. Saul was merciless in his persecution of the church. You see, Saul had his own version of zeal. Saul was zealous just like the Christians were zealous. He was just zealous for religion more than for God. And that's a risky place to be. 
And before we start pointing fingers at other people or other groups, let's just be honest, it's real easy for all of us to do that. To slide in to getting more zealous about our church or our thing or our, the way we see it and to make it about religion more than it is about the Lord. Paul was stuck in that. He was trusting in himself and his understanding and his righteousness and his position rather than in the Lord. And it took him down a dark place. And he dragged them off and it says he committed them to prison. This wasn't like a flash in the pan, mild, momentary type of persecution. They were thrown in prison probably for years, if not decades. And let's just be honest. I mean, nobody wants to go to prison today. You definitely didn't want to go to prison back then. Their prisons back then made ours today look like a country club. We're talking about like thrown in a hole, no light, scraps of food, no, no human interaction, no recreation. Like there was some hard things that these people were getting ready to walk through. These believers, these believers were in deep, hot, heavy, refining type of persecution. But God was going to use it. God was going to use it for his church, and he was going to use it in their lives if they would trust him. If, if, you were to, if we were to go around and ask people in, on earth today or whatever, like what's the most valuable metal? What's the most valuable thing on earth? What would most people say? Okay, yeah, I'm not, not a trick question. Like, this is a real thing. Like, that's what, that's what we base all of our financial systems on, right? Like, all the money we print, it's all based on how much gold do you have, right? So, but this type of gold, the gold that we see as valuable, the pure gold, you don't just find that anywhere. You don't just go dig that out of the ground somewhere, right? What you can dig up is gold ore, which is actually gold mixed with a whole bunch of other minerals and rocks and stuff. And so to get the pure gold, the valuable gold, you have to get all the other stuff out and boil it down. And so back in biblical times, the way they would do that is they would take the gold ore, put it in a container, put it in some type of pot or whatever, and then they would put that over a super hot fire. Because so they had to get it so hot that they got it up to the point where the gold turned to liquid. There's a melting point where gold liquefies. And so they would heat it super hot with this fire until it finally liquefied. And then as it became a liquid, all the other minerals, all the other impurities, all the other things that weren't gold would float to the top. Which would then allow the blacksmith or goldsmith or whoever to swipe away, to skim off the top the impurities that weren't supposed to be there to get to the real pure gold. And then you would have left the good stuff. That's what God does in the life of Christians. He allows the heat to be turned up. He allows us to be put over the fire to heat up our lives so that those impurities, those, those doubts that we have, those fears that we have, those things that we can't control, the things that we don't know how to handle, that all those can then float to the top. Isn't that how it works? When you're in the, when you're in the fire, doesn't all your bad stuff come out? <laughs> doesn't it all come to the surface? And God brings it to the surface so that we can see it, so that he can see it, so he can take that and wipe it away and remove that from our lives to purify our faith in the midst of the fire. That's what he's doing here to the church. That's what he still does today for those who follow him. 
he uses the persecution that challenges our faith to refine us. God uses persecution to purify me for Jesus. Most of us don't quite know the purifying experience of being beaten for our faith or going to prison for our faith or even being killed for our faith. We haven't done that. So sometimes it's hard for us to read passages like this and be like, I can't, I can't quite relate. I don't know how to hook into that. But let's just be sure, God uses all kinds of persecution, not just like the hot and heavy prison beating type of persecution. He uses all, all that smaller daily forms of persecution that almost even seem hidden at times in our culture, God uses that in your life too. When your friends are taunting you at school because you believe something that they think is crazy, God uses that. When your family disowns you or won't talk to you because now you're following a, a, a God who's different than their God, God uses that. When you miss out at work with the parties or the promotions or the stuff because you're different than everybody else because you follow Jesus and you just don't quite fit in the same, God uses that. All those other little forms of persecution, God uses all of that. All these little tests are working to purify our faith, to say, can you handle this one? Can you handle this one? Will you stay with me? Will you still trust me if everything doesn't go your way? God uses all of it. And when he does, when he turns up the fire, it either purifies our faith and strengthens our trust in him, or it burns up our faith. And we walk away from him and we walk back to the ways of the world. It's a test. And God wants to purify you through it. The story goes on. Look at verse 4. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Point number two. When persecution changes your plans, trust the Lord. When persecution changes your plans, trust the Lord. Who likes it when somebody else changes their plans? Show of hands. Yeah, okay, that's a universal thing, right? Every culture, every nation, every place, like we like to have our plans, our plans. And let me tell you, the early church, their plan was not to be scattered across the countryside. Their original plan was, man, we just need to stay together right here. We got this new community of people. We all love each other, man. We're having a good time. We're learning. We're following Jesus. We need to stay here in Jerusalem where we're comfortable and we have houses and we know people and, and we need to stay with the apostles because they're leading us and we're looking up to them. Like we need to stay right here. That was their plan. But they forgot. Christ already gave them a plan. Do you remember the plan? Back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, I told you this was like the point of the whole book of Acts. Jesus says this, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That was Jesus' plan. And they were all for Jesus' plan at the beginning, right? Holy Spirit, yes. Power, yes. Telling people in Jerusalem, all of our friends and family getting saved, yes. We're on all of that. Love that, Jesus. And then they got comfortable. And then they kind of settled into 
man, we got our group here, we're doing good, let's just keep doing this thing right here in Jerusalem. And they forgot about Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And so God here, I believe, is allowing persecution. He's going to use this persecution to push them out of their plan and to get him back on, get them back on his plan, to get them moving, to get them advancing the mission for the gospel. And because I know this, because as they were scattered, as he pushed them out of Jerusalem, notice there in the verse it says, they went preaching the word. This is how we know that they're still faithful. This is how we know they're still with Jesus. Even though they're scattering, they're going preaching the word, preaching the gospel. Persecution had changed their plans, but it had not changed their passion. They were still all in for Jesus. And I love how they did not waste the opportunities that change brought. (laughs) So many times, man, God changes our plans, and we get so, like, freaked out that God is changing our plans, that all we have is this tunnel vision about what we wanted and what it used to be and what it's supposed to be, and we miss all the other things that we have opportunity to be a part of in the change. But they didn't miss the opportunity. It says, as they went, they preached, which reminds me of Jesus' words before he, right before he ascended in Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples. We've taught this before. That go means as you're going. And so as they went, as they scattered, what did they do? They made disciples by preaching the gospel. Faithful obedience. Despite their pain, despite their loss, despite their fear, despite their disappointment and their own desires, despite all of that being changed and taken away, they went preaching the gospel. See, persecution actually helps the church achieve God's purposes if we handle it correctly. We are so, especially in America, and please don't hear me wrong, I am abundantly thankful that God has given us a country that up to this point we have had religious liberty to worship him the way that we have. Love that. So grateful for that. But as we start to see some of that starting to slip away, We can't get so freaked out and despairing and worried that the plan is changing, that we huddle up and run away and tuck our heads and, no. We go and we keep preaching the word. That's the way it's been all throughout history. Every time persecution comes, the church doesn't shrink. The church actually grows when persecution comes because now it's real. Now you have to own it. It's not just easy anymore. It says here, Philip, as an example of people going and preaching, it says Philip went to Samaria, which is a totally bold move, because if you remember, Samaritans and Jews, they didn't like each other, right? In fact, they kind of hated each other. The Jews saw the Samaritans as kind of these half-breeds, both religiously and ethnically. They were sellouts. They were, they were, they were heretics. They just, they were the worst, man. But that didn't stop Jesus. How many times in the Gospels do we see Jesus going and talking to or doing ministry with or bringing 
the good news to the Samaritans. And he explicitly told the disciples back in Acts 1-8, go to Judea and Samaria. Like he's already told them, like, this is a place you've got to go. Because he understood what they did not. That the Samaritans were already primed for the gospel. Even though they didn't have a full, correct theology of Abraham and all that kind of stuff, they did believe that a deliverer was coming, that a Messiah was coming to rescue them. They were primed for the gospel. And I believe what God's doing here with this persecution is saying, hey, stop trying to talk to these hard-hearted, hard-headed Jews in Jerusalem that have it all figured out and go to the people who are actually ready to hear. Go to the people who are primed and ripe and ready for the gospel. Here at Harvest, we call this red apple evangelism. If I was to take you out to an orchard right now, I don't know if it's apple season right now or not, it's totally outside of my, my zone, but if, let's say, pretend that it is, and we go to an orchard right now to do apple picking, and we're walking up and down the aisles of trees, the rows of trees, I, I don't, I, this isn't my thing, but let's say we go out there and we're, we're, going, we're going to go apple picking, we're going up and down the trees, you're not picking the small, scrawny, green, undeveloped apples, right? That's, that's not the ones you grab. You grab the nice red, big, ripe, ready apples, right? Same thing for evangelism. So often we get so stuck on, I want this person to get saved and this person to get saved. I love them. They're my family. They're my friends. Da, 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 da. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with praying for them. There's nothing, no longer, nothing wrong with wanting them to be saved. But if they're green, if they're not ready for the gospel yet, if they're not ripe, if God hasn't done a, a work in their heart and prepared them to hear the good news, it's just like banging your head against a wall. And so oftentimes we're so focused on the green apples that we want to get saved that all the red apples in our lives that, that we come in contact with every day, we completely miss them. We don't even see them. We don't go to them because we're stuck over here. And God's saying, stop with this plan, get on my plan, and look at all these people around you that a boulder has dropped on their life, and they are hungry for something different, and they are looking for answers, and you have the answers. Give it to them. So when God changes your plans, man, start looking for red apples. Because it's very likely that he's positioning you to find the right people with the gospel. We see here the paradox of persecution in this story. Persecution was supposed to silence the gospel, but God's perfect plan was for it to spread the gospel. Saul thought, if I imprison them, if I beat them, if I tear them up, then then this all this all stop. This will all go away. This crazy Jesus stuff, and we'll, we'll just get rid of all of that if we just persecute them hard enough. And God's like, oh yeah, bring it on. I'm gonna use this to advance my gospel even further. That's how our God works. You can't thwart his plans. You can't get one up on God. John Stott in his commentary says it like this. I thought this was great. He says, what is plain is that the devil who lurks behind all persecution of the church, overreached himself. His attack and the, 
had the opposite effect to what he intended. Instead of smothering the gospel, persecution succeeded only in spreading it. May we never forget that whatever power Satan has, it is nothing compared to the power of our God. We have three little girls, and every night at bedtime, um, we have our bedtime routine, and, and they, we do the Bible story, and they, we, I pray, we pray with them and stuff. And so it's always great to get in and just sit down and listen to their little voices um, pray to the Lord and just speak to God. And this summer when we were at our family camp that we go to, um, Ava's class um, taught them how to pray with a prayer list. And so she's got this little piece of paper she prays through, and she prays for her friends, and she prays for her school day, and she prays for her church, she prays for all this stuff. And one of the things she's been praying for is for missionaries. And so she's been praying for missionaries. And this is how her missionary prayer usually goes. God, please help the missionaries be safe in China and not get caught in China because you aren't supposed to have Bibles in China. I don't know where she learned all that. <laughs> well, we didn't tell her that, but somehow she's picked that up and she's right. And so that's her prayer every night that the Lord would work in that. And I think that's, that's the way a lot of us would pray for that. That's the way a lot of us would think about that. Like, Lord, protect them, keep them safe. Keep, you know, they, they, need, they need that most. But when we look through history of the church, that's often not how God works. Speaking of China, I'll give you one example. Back in 1949, the Chinese national government, who had been in power for a while, was overthrown by the Communist Party in China, by the Communist group. So they took over the government and they immediately outlawed all religions that were contrary to their agenda, their political and social agenda, which means Christianity. And so almost immediately, 637 China inland missionaries had to leave, had to exit the country, get out overnight. It seemed like a complete disaster for the church, right? Like you withdraw 637 Christian workers and gospel preachers from the country. You're like, what the heck's going to happen? Yet, within four years, 286 of those same missionaries had been redeployed other places in Southeast Asia and in Japan to continue expanding and advancing the gospel in other parts of the region. And here's the best part. Meanwhile, while being persecuted, the national Chinese Christians grew and grew and multiplied to where they are now 30 to 40 times more today than they were when the missionaries left. What oftentimes seems like mission failure to us is actually God just changing the plan to advance the gospel and have an even greater mission and greater impact for the kingdom. We just have to open our eyes and see the change. We need to learn to see persecution through the eyes of God and not just our own situations. How do you want to use this, God? How are you going to do something better? God uses persecution to position me for mission. Oftentimes when God allows persecution to come out of our life, he's just rearranging some things. He's changing it up. He's repositioning me to have a greater impact for his church, for his kingdom, for his mission, if I will trust him, if I'll open my eyes, open my hands, and trust the Lord in the midst of it. Nothing that comes our way ever catches God by surprise. He always knows 
And he's always got a better plan than what we got. Our job is to rely on the strength of the Spirit. To trust the Lord in the midst of the change. Last part. Let's finish up the story here. Look at uh, verse 5 again. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Point number three, when persecution crushes your heart, trust the Lord. I just have to believe that Philip was hurting right here. I mean, again, try to, anytime you read the Bible, I say this all the time, but you've got to put yourself in their shoes. You've got to put yourself in the story to really get it. Think about if you were Philip. He was probably very close to Stephen. Both Hellenistic Jews, leaders in the church, following Christ in the same city, like they were probably close friends. So his best, his close friend has just been killed. He's just lost his position and purpose in Jerusalem. He was one of the seven guys that were appointed to oversee the, the, uh, the Hellenist widows, remember back in a couple chapters ago? So now he's lost that position. He's lost that job. He's lost his people that he's had around him, his purpose. He's losing his newfound spiritual family to be scattered into the countryside. I think he's hurting. And now, of all places, he finds himself in Samaria. This is going to be miserable. <laughs> I hate these people. But look what he does. He went to Samaria, and he proclaimed to them the Christ. Despite all the hurt and all the pain, he goes and he shares with them his greatest possession, his greatest treasure, his greatest joy in life he gives to this people. And it says, because of this, the crowds paid attention to his words and because of the signs. So he starts healing people. He starts casting out demons. He starts using the power of the Holy Spirit to authenticate his message as being from the true God. And he preaches the gospel and people respond. So despite his crushed heart, he decides to help. He decides to serve the very people that he probably didn't even want to look at before. He's not moping around. He's not withdrawing or turning inward or putting up walls or trying to deal with the pain. He's pouring himself out in the midst of it. How do you do that? How is that even possible? When you are at your lowest, when you feel crushed, when you feel paralyzed by the pain and the suffering and the persecution or whatever it is God's allowed into your life, how, how do you do that? The Bible's answer is strength from the Spirit. The only way we do that by letting the Holy Spirit fill us with his power and his strength to move us forward even when we feel like we can't take a step. I believe that Philip here, as shown by the um, miraculous signs and by his own testimony, was filled 
with the supernatural strength of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that was true because he was trusting in the Lord and not in himself. That even in the pain, even in the suffering, he kept trusting the Lord and the Lord kept filling him up to do more and more and more. Despite his pain, he kept his joy in Christ because he trusted in the Lord, not himself. That's what it boils down to. Can you have joy in the midst of the pain? The only way you get that is through the gospel. There is great joy in the truth of who Jesus is. See, God understands that all of us, I kind of mentioned this earlier when we were doing communion, all of us are broken and sinful and unable to fix that problem. We're born that way, we live that way, our world is that way, like we're just inundated with sin and brokenness. And we can't fix it and we can't solve it and God knows that and so he said, you know what, I'm gonna help. I'm gonna do this for you. And so he sent his son Jesus to come to be born a human, to live a perfect, sinless life, something that we could never do. To walk a life free of sin and then to go to the cross and die a sinner's death. To willingly give his life for something he didn't do. He served as a substitute. He took our wrath, our punishment, our pain, what we deserved for our sin, he took it on himself. He says, I'll pay it for you. I'll stand in your place and I'll do it for you. And he took our death and our punishment and he went into the grave. And then three days later, he rose back to life to show that he was God, to prove that he was who he said he was and to say, look, believe in me. Put your faith in me. Trust me and I'll forgive your sins and I'll cleanse your heart and you can be part of the family of God. He offers that to all of us. And if you've never done that, if you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus, he wants you to do that today. And when he does that, when you do that, and he saves you, he changes your heart, you, for the first time in your life, you will know true joy. When I think about my sin debt has been 100% completely paid in full, and that I have eternity secured with God in heaven forever, there is no greater gift, there is no greater joy that we can find. When you have the gospel, joy overflows from your life and it spills onto everyone around you. That's exactly what happens with Philip here. Notice the last line in the story, it says, much joy was in the city. You know why there was joy in the city? Because Philip brought the joy to the city. Philip came full of the gospel, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the power and the strength, and he shared it with other people, and his joy overflowed onto them. And then their joy grew up, and their joy fed his joy, and it becomes just this cycle of joy amongst the people of God. A couple weeks ago, I got to preach at Harvest Decatur. 
Um, Pastor Tony was here preaching with you guys, and uh, it was just a, a really great time. But I met this couple while we were there. Um, he's an elder, and then um, his wife um, is originally from Turkey, the country, not the food. Um, and so she was. She grew up as a Turkish Muslim there in the, in the country of Turkey. Her entire family's Muslim, Turkey, whole thing. But while she was there, she married a U.S. soldier who was um, stationed there and then eventually came back with him to the United States. When she moved back to the United States, after a couple years, her life looked completely different. Um, She was now a single mom, raising a couple kids in a country where she barely spoke the language, where she didn't have any family, didn't have any friends, didn't have any support. And so she ends up finding her way into a Christian evangelical church. And she hears the gospel very much like I just shared with you. And she fully and wholly gave her heart and her life to Jesus Christ. And he came and completely changed her and filled her with joy. But as soon as she started believing in Jesus, as soon as she found Jesus, she lost her family. Because they disowned her. They wouldn't talk to her. They, they thought she was crazy. They thought that like, she had turned on them. And it was just no communication, completely cut off. Now, eventually, they kind of came around, and they at least talk now, and they at least have communication, although they still criticize her and, and say she's crazy and that her faith is in Jesus is, is, is ridiculous or whatever. But through all of that, I mean, that's some, some of you have been through family stuff with, because of your faith. Like, that's, that's the hardest, I think. This woman has known severe persecution from her own family. And yet, as I sat there over lunch, talking with her and her husband, she still speaks of Jesus and her relationship with him with the greatest excitement and the greatest joy that I've ever seen. She knows what it means to trust in Jesus in the middle of the suffering, in the middle of the persecution, and it just flows from her. And she's still praying for her family, and she's still hoping that one day her joy will become their joy, and they will get it. But until that day, she endures the persecution, and she holds tight to the Lord, and she is filled with joy. Real persecution brings real joy if we trust in the Lord. It's got to all come together. God uses persecution to produce in me joy. God uses persecution to produce in me joy. I said this at the beginning, persecution is God giving me a chance to trust him more. God allows it, he uses it, he puts it in our lives to let us learn, I can trust the Lord. In the good, in the bad, up and down, I can trust the Lord. Listen, nobody likes to go through persecution. It's just not fun. Nobody's looking for it. Nobody's asking for it. We're not, but hopefully you do enjoy growing in the Lord and growing in your relationship and your joy of Jesus Christ. And a lot of times the 
greatest joy and the greatest growth comes through the greatest persecution. It all comes down to how we use it. Are we willing to trust the Lord in the midst of it? Instead of running from persecution, are we willing to see it as a gift from the Lord and the strength of the Spirit grow in it? This is a complete mind shift. We do not naturally think this way. We have to purposefully change our minds and our hearts to see it through the eyes of the Lord. But if we do that, if we will embrace it the way that the early church did, we can see the same gospel mission, gospel explosion that they saw as Christian faith just ran rampant across the countries. I want to be a part of something like that. I want our church to be a part of something like that. Where we say, Lord, man, I don't like it and it's not fun, but if this is getting more for you, then I'm in. Like I'm in, I trust you no matter what. So I'm gonna pray along those lines. If you're not there yet, if you're like, that's not, no, Micah, I'm not signing up for that. Okay, you don't have to pray with me. You can just like stand there silently and that's cool. We'll trust the spirit to do what he wants to do. But we're gonna pray like that and we're gonna sing and we're gonna respond to the Lord and ask him to give us the strength of the spirit to walk in the midst of the hard stuff. Stand with me, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for the stories of your church, the stories of those who have went before us in the faith, who have carried the torch, who have done the hard work of following you and trusting you no matter what comes. Heavenly Father, we want that. We want to walk with you. We want to serve you. We want to find all of our joy in you no matter what happens. we understand that sometimes this will come through flames. Sometimes this will come through fire and heartache, pain, suffering, challenge. So Lord, we pray today, we ask you, we beg you, Lord, please fill us with the strength of your spirit. Fill us with the strength to endure the persecution and to keep trusting in you no matter what comes our way. Lord, you are our only hope. We trust you. Christ, amen.